You're listening to the New Life Church Podcast, where we are passionate about helping you connect to your God-given purpose. To learn more about New Life Church, including our service times in Canton, Georgia, visit us online at newlifecanton.com. We're in part three of our series, Faith That Works, a study in the book of James. And last week we talked about what it really means to accept the word of God, accept the word of God. We found out that James is quite clear about his position. Listening to God's word, even studying God's word is extremely important. But if you never allow those seeds of truth to grow in you and manifest action, fruit in your life, James says your religion, he called it, is what? It's useless. We talked about controlling our anger, (laughs) controlling our tongue, that we shouldn't allow blessing and cursing to come out of the same mouth. And we're not just talking about words like bad words. We're talking about anything that is derogatory, negative uh, to come out of our mouth. Overall, it was a very uplifting sermon. (laughs) Thank you, Agnes. (laughs) No. We also talked about looking into the perfect law of God, like it's a mirror. See, the law cannot save us. Somebody say amen. The Old Testament law, it's, it's, it can't save us, but it, what it does, its job is to show us our need for a savior. But if we look into that perfect law, that mirror, and then we just shrug our shoulders and don't do anything, don't change anything, something's wrong. Something's amiss. It's, 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 it's where we found that it's only in that place of surrender that we find freedom. Now, see, that's the great paradox of the kingdom of God. We find freedom through surrender. Now, that's counterintuitive in the world, right? That makes no sense in the natural, but it is gospel. It makes sense in the kingdom. For some of you, your Christian experience has been extremely um, frustrating. Can I say that? And ineffective. And this series we're in right now in James could be the reason, could explain to you the reason why you feel that way. Maybe you've not fully surrendered your life to Christ. Maybe you're still holding some things back from him. On the outside, you're going through the motions, you're doing the right things, you're checking off the boxes, but your heart is not fully his. If that's you this morning, there is so much hope. Because that's frustrating, isn't it? Come on, you hear the testimonies of God's grace and mercy and miracles working in people's lives, but it hasn't worked that way for you. And I think this might be the reason. You haven't fully surrendered your heart and everything to the Lord. So today, I really want you to lean in and embrace this and and listen and receive the word of the Lord today and maybe what your next step is in your faith journey. Because today, guess what? We're gonna be mostly in the same vein as we were last week, just a different angle. We're moving from last week was listening and doing, right? Remember that? Listening and doing. Today is going to be believing and doing. Believing and doing. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for the anointing that I sense in this place. Thank you for the grace and the mercy that is present. We all just take a collective breath in your presence. Just slow everything down because our lives run so fast, so crazy. Lord, let us just slow our spirit down and receive your word. Accept it today. Let it go deep in our hearts and that we would be moved to action. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. All right, we're gonna be, finally made it to James chapter two. James chapter two, we're gonna begin with verse one. And this little section is not, pertaining as much to our title, our subtitle, as the rest of it, but I don't think we can skip it, okay? So James 2.1 says, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? How can you claim to have faith in Jesus if you favor some people over others? Now, I'm not going to stay here too, too long, but James uses the next 13 verses to talk about that question. And so I don't think we can skip over it. Now, he wasn't speaking hypothetically here. This was happening. Remember, he's writing to Jewish believers that had been scattered because of persecution. He's writing to these believers, and evidently word had gotten back to him that some of the leaders, some of the elders of this church were doing this. They were favoring the wealthy over the poor in their services, in their church, and in, in, in no uncertain terms, uh, he is making a correction that rings true to us as well today. Look at the screen. There is no room for prejudiced behavior in the kingdom of God. No room. No excuse. But what we need to understand is that class favoritism, class, that's what we're talking about, class this is not as much about race as it is class favoritism, was so common in the ancient world that it was almost, it was really assumed it was going to happen. In other words, prejudiced behavior didn't surprise anybody. This wasn't like, oh, that's that kind of church. I'm not going, it was assumed. It didn't surprise the rich person. It didn't surprise the poor person. It didn't surprise the favored person. It didn't surprise the one who was unfavored. Are you hearing me? It was a cultural norm. But James is saying, no, not anymore. Jesus has established a new way. He showed us with his very life an example of the way to live and how to treat everyone. Everyone. Rich, poor, male, female, young or old. And we all say amen, right? And yet, <laughs> we're all guilty sometimes of the same thing. And it's not just a thing, it's actually a sin. Without even realizing it, we rank people. Oh, y'all got quiet. We, we rank people, we do. We kind of pigeonhole people into different categories based on how they look, they dress, their position in life, their status, their talents, their abilities, and their money. Even what kind of car they drive, what neighborhood they live in, what kind of house they live in. 
Because if we're honest, most of us like nice things. Not a trick question or statement. And so we're drawn to people who have them. (laughs) We're drawn to those who appear successful. And that's not a sin to be drawn to that or to want nice things. But the problem is we end up favoring them with our attention. We favor them with our time. We'll spend more time. We'll go out of our way for people who maybe later on can help us. We favor them with our conversation. And we do this because deep down, we want to be identified with them. We want to be identified with their success. Maybe it'll rub off, right? And James says, no, don't do it. Y'all going to be okay? Y'all right? So as the pastor of, of a church, I have to be extremely mindful of this in my life. I have to be extremely intentional about this. I'm, I'm, I'm the leader of really, if you just want to break it down, a nonprofit organization, a 501c3. Nothing comes into this church unless it is donated. You get it? What I'm trying to say is, let me just be real clear. There's not a pastor on earth who don't want rich people in their church. If you go to some pastor and they say, oh, no, not me, they're lying. Because the ministry, a lot of the ministries that we do are based largely on the money, the finances that come in. That's how the world works. And God can work with that. He, it's, it's, that's not wrong in and of itself. But I must be so intentional and think about and work on not favoring people with means over people who have nothing to give. If I do, I'm sinning. See, we must always remember, I must always remember that this is not mine. I'm an under shepherd. I'm a steward for a little bit of time and so are you. This is God's church. Jesus is the head. He is the one who has blessed us. It is his hand that is upon us. So it doesn't matter really how much money or no money, how many tithe breakers we we can have in the church or all these things. Jesus is the center. Jesus is the head of his church. And as long as we keep him as the focus and his mission before us, he will take care of us. So real quickly, just a summary of this little section. The way of the world is to favor the wealthy and successful. We know it. We see it. We've experienced it on both sides. But the way of the kingdom is different. The way that Jesus established is different. And so as followers of Christ, it must be different for us. Whenever I teach on something like this, God tests me on it immediately. Does he do y'all that way? Just this week, he tested me on this and I can't get into the details because it's still fresh and privacy issues there. But as I was hitting a moment of, or not a moment, a few hours of frustration with this, God reminded me 
hey, big boy, that young man is my child. And I'm working in him. Just like, by the way, I'm working in you. Because you hadn't arrived yet either. So that's been my week. Let's skip to uh, verse 14 of chapter 2. Now, these next verses, all right? Oh, you got your seatbelts on? You ready? Spiritual seatbelts. These are some of the most theologically significant in the New Testament, but they also happen to be some of the most controversial, difficult. As we read this, it might make you uncomfortable as Christians in America, especially, because it almost seems to contradict Paul's teaching about salvation by grace. But just hang in there. We're going to get there. All right. So let's read through it carefully and prayerfully. James chapter two, verse 14. What good is it, James says, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your action? Can that kind of faith So James is warning us here, listen, that it takes more than intellectual assent with the gospel to have real faith. In other words, it takes more, listen, it takes more than agreement with Christianity to be saved. Look at the screen. True faith transforms our behavior as well as our thoughts or mind. If our life remains unchanged by the gospel, then do we really even believe it? James says, no. If all we do is agree with information but fail to receive, accept our word last week, accept it as truth into our lives, we have an incomplete faith. We have a one-sided faith. Faith. Remember the coin from last week? And James is seeing this as one faith with two sides, except he probably wouldn't even go there. He'd be like, no, it's just one faith. That includes this and this. Believing and doing. In the next two verses, James illustrates what he just said. In verse 15, he says, suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say, goodbye and have a great day. Stay warm and eat well. But you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? This, this little parable doesn't really happen. He's making it up. It, 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 nice words are spoken to a person in great need. He's, the guy's not being mean to him. He's saying, hey, have a great day. Stay warm and well-fed. That is not mean. But he doesn't give him anything. And so what good does it do for this person in need? Nothing. So in the next verse, James just gives us his conclusion about faith right here. Except then he just drills down deeper and deeper the rest of the time and just goes further and further with it. But verse 17, he says it. He says, so you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds or good works or fruit, it is dead and useless. 
Now, hang with me. Because of verse 19 that we're going to read in just a minute, we know that when he says faith here, go back. Oh, right. Sorry, that one right there. I should have highlighted that. When he says faith right there, he's talking about belief. We know that because we're going to read it in just a minute. Just trust me, he's talking about belief. So you could actually read it that way. So you see belief by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. So belief in Jesus, belief in God, and he's warning that that kind of faith, belief only faith, is useless. Are you following me? So what's our series title? Faith that works. Look at the screen. James contends that for our faith to work, it must be a working faith. You remember the truck illustration in week one? Does your truck work? What does, I'm, what does it mean? Does, it, does the engine run? Does the transmission operate correctly? Or is the truck sitting out in a dump somewhere useless? It's a truck, come on. It's a truck, but it's not running. It's not working. And James is saying, listen, is your faith working? Is it at work? Is it useful? Or is it sitting somewhere unused and the grass growing up around it? Is it working? Now, don't panic because I always do when I read this. He's not talking about salvation through works. We're gonna get there. We're gonna talk about that tension. But first, in these next verses, he just continues to drill down into this idea and this concept. Verse 18. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. I will prove to you I have faith through what I do. In other words, he's saying, my faith, listen, is not just lip service. When I was a little kid across the street, there were some older boys that I was probably five and they were 10 or 11. And of course they could do more than I could athletically. You know, they were more developed, all these things, but not in my mind. And I wanted to keep up with them. And so they were over there on, on the porch and the, the, the ground was slanted like this. And so the end of that porch was high. And there were bushes that grew up even higher than the railings. And they were jumping off the railing over the bush that was higher. So it was about an eight foot drop once they got over that. And then they would roll. Well, I walked up there and they were like, Alan, I bet you can't do that. And I said, hold my beer. No, I didn't because I was five. 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 Is that the second time I've said that in a sermon? I think it is. Something is wrong. We have to laugh in these kind of sermons, don't we? So I tried to prove it. And I got up on that rail, little five-year-old. And I leapt and I thought I was doing great until that bush grabbed my leg and flipped me over and I landed right on my elbow and it just snapped. 
I don't know what that had to do with this message. But anyway, I was trying to prove it. And I did, was not successful. I was not successful. But James is saying, I'm going to prove to you my faith is more than lip service. Now listen carefully to verse 19. It will send chills. You say you have faith for you believe. There's our word. Everybody say believe. You say you have faith for you believe that there is one God. Well, good for you because even demons believe that. So this is how we know he was talking about belief only back in verse 17 when he was saying faith. Listen to me, folks. Satan believes in Jesus. He's met him. He's been around him. Satan believes in God. But Satan is not saved. (laughs) When I was little... I used to pray that Satan would just get saved. <laughs> I'm like, dang, that would solve the whole thing. <laughs> what an evangelist and testimony he would have. <laughs> I had not studied Revelation yet, okay? I had not <laughs> seen the end of the book. It's not going to happen. Satan believes in Jesus, but he is not saved. Satan and his demons believe in Jesus, but they do not obey his commands because they do not have a righteous, growing relationship with him. Verse 20, how foolish, James says. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham, you remember Abraham? Remember, Father Abraham, that's who he's talking about, had many sons. All of y'all went to Sunday school, nobody over here did. (laughs) That's right. He says, do you remember our ancestor Abraham? He was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. Now remember, he's writing to Jews, so they would be very familiar with Abraham, the father of their faith. And now we get a, the next verse, we get a key insight. Lean forward. Key insight of faith, about faith, based on this Abrahamic story. Verse 22. He says, You see, Abraham's faith, belief, what are you talking about? Abraham's belief and his actions worked together. Say, worked together. His actions made his faith complete. Two sides, one coin. This is huge. Now, we're breathing a little easier. We kind of make some understanding here. I'm going to totally mess it up. We're going to look at something Paul wrote in Romans about Abraham and faith. And they seem to contradict each other. I'm just wading right in this morning. I don't know what's wrong with it. Romans 4, verse 1. This is Paul. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right or righteous with God? If his good deeds, okay, had made him acceptable, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. 
For the scripture tells us Abraham, oh, believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Isn't studying the Bible fun? I love it. All right. So how, how, listen, how did Abraham believe God? Did he just say, I believe? You know the story, most of us, that even if you're not familiar with the Bible too much, you know about Abraham and Isaac. He demonstrated his faith by being willing to go to the mountain with the wood and the, the, the fire and his, his promised son after 25 years of waiting for him that God had commanded that he sacrifice him. Of course, God never planned on him to, to be harmed, but he was testing Abraham's faith and he took him and stayed his hands. But Abraham believed God by trusting him with Isaac and showed it by going to the mountain. Verse four, when, this is Paul, when people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. Now that is like hard to understand and swallow after what we have just read straight from James in the other book. It sounds like they're at complete odds with each other. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther from the 1500s, the great reformer who was battling uh, uh, just a church that was corrupt, right? A church that had turned salvation into a joke, something they sold. It didn't let people read the Bible for themselves. And Martin Luther was a reformer of that. And he read through, he was a Paul guy. He was a Pauline guy. He loved Paul because it was saved by grace through faith alone. And we believe that, we know that's true. And he was all about it. But then he got to James and he wanted to discard it from the Bible. It, it really flipped him out because of this dichotomy, what seems to be in contradiction. The only way that we can reconcile this is through under, listen, so important understanding the context of which these men were writing and to whom they were writing. Because one was writing to, in an angle towards one side of the coin and the other was dealing with the other side. Error on both sides. And they were drilling down on both sides of the coin. James and Paul were both talking about saving faith but from very different angles. James was dealing with a group of people who were abusing grace by saying and leaving out the importance of good deeds and good works. Paul was dealing with a group called the Judaizers who were devaluing, subverting the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the work of salvation that only he could perform in the blood of Jesus. They were subverting that. And these men were actually asking new Christians, new believers to follow through with some of the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament, in the Torah, in order to be saved. They had to do that. So there was error on both sides. And they were, they were dealing, I'm sorry, there were error on both sides, one on the side of works and the other on the side of what? Grace. So let me just play it, say it plainly now so that we're not confused. 
James and Paul, when properly interpreted in their own context, are not opposed to one another concerning the meaning of faith. They give the appearance of conflict because they are writing from different vantage points because they're addressing different problems, one on one side and one on the other. Does that make sense? So then in back to James, in verses 23 to 25, James finishes his story about Abraham and then gives us another example in Rahab the prostitute. We're not going to read about it, but she lived in Jericho. Remember Jericho? And she demonstrated her faith by hiding the spies, the Israeli spies, and making sure they were taken care of. And because of her faith, God spared her life and her entire family when Israel came in to destroy the nation. God spared her life. Listen, and she ended up as the great grandmother of King David. I thought that'd be a little more powerful, but anyway, that's pretty cool. And because of her faith, she is mentioned in the lineage of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, we're going to end today on this verse. Verse 26, just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. Now, I rarely do this, but I want you to hear this in the message paraphrased version. Okay, this is not a translation. It's paraphrased, but I love it. It says, the moment you separate body and spirit, you end up with a corpse, right? Dead person. Separate faith or belief and works, and you get the same thing, a corpse. Now listen to me, James is not arguing that works be added to faith, say added. He's not saying we add works to our faith. He's saying that works are gonna become a natural byproduct of biblical faith. Here's the point, faith without evidence, say evidence. Faith without evidence is no faith at all. I looked up the word evidence in the dictionary and it said an outward sign, something people can see. How many knows chapter and verse of the, the faith chapter in the Bible? Somebody, some Bible scholar, come on, faith chapter. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter. It talks about men and women of God in the Old Testament who had great faith. Some of them had epic things that happened, miracles, and others died for their faith. And both are said to have great faith. But 11.1 is the definition. Do you think that might be helpful to our talk today? And I'm going to give it to you in the King James. Ver oh, come on. Yes, I knew I'd get one. He's like, finally, pastor got saved. <laughs> Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for that hadn't happened. The, say it, the evidence seen of things not yet seen. Now, y'all, I've taught this for 30 years. Have you? I've taught that about faith for 30. I've taught James for years and years. And I've always taught it I've always taught it as just simply trusting God for things we can't see. 
and trusting God for our prayer requests and miracles and trusting God for our salvation and eternal life. You fill in the blank. And that's not wrong, but it's not complete. I had some church this week right here. I hope I can explain it to you. I've never seen this before. When I wrote out my point that faith without evidence is no faith at all, I was reminded of this verse in the King James Version. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And the Holy Spirit connected some dots for me. Our faith is trusting God for things that we can't see. Can we agree on that? Amen? But how we live... Oh, I'm gonna come off the stage. How we live our daily life is evidence that we really believe. My God, that is good preaching. I'm slow, but I'm worth waiting on. Let me put it another way. If I'm trusting God for something in the future, then my life needs to line up with that now. Not after he moves, not after the miracle, not after the provision, not after the job, not after my kid. I'm talking about right now. If I have faith, then my life will be evidence of that. Woo! So good deeds, good works are a natural part of my faith. Not something manufactured, not a to-do list. They're a natural byproduct of my faith. Here's the big idea today. Oh, salvation does not depend on good deeds, but results in good deeds. Now, I want to end this with just a pastoral conversation, okay? I'm not teaching this series so that you will doubt your salvation or doubt your faith. That's the last thing that I want. That's the enemy. Paul said in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. This sermon is not about you coming up with some good deeds to do next week in order to be saved. That's not the message of James. Are you hearing me? That's legalism and it leads to death, not life. Let me tell you what this is really about. It's all about having an active, growing relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. Look at the screen, last point. True belief in Jesus means a complete immersion into a relationship with him. Jesus himself said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. If we get that part right, if we're in a daily pursuit of Jesus, the rest of it will take care of itself. You won't even be able to stop the good deeds that the Holy Spirit does in and through you. I feel him. Last thing. I just want to remind you 
we do not have the capacity in and of ourselves to produce anything eternal. Anything of real spiritual value. It is Christ in us. Christ working through us. That makes the difference. Our job is simply to surrender, to submit to the work of grace that he is doing in my life, in your life. Would you bow your heads? If you were challenged and are encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever else you find us. To experience other messages, videos, and live events, visit us online at newlifecanton.com. And again, thank you for listening to the New Life Church Podcast.